millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is Atlantis, which means we have to talk about whether it's even history. I will tell you right now it's not, okay? But it does tell us very interesting things about Europe for about two and a half thousand years. But what's really interesting is there's a massive gap of more than a thousand years where nobody is talking about Atlantis and yet today and here's the thing look I could hang it on something like the Disney movie the 2001 Disney movie Atlantis the Lost Empire maybe when you were a kid or maybe you took your kids to see Atlantis the Lost Empire it was the one that had Michael J Fox as the sort of the main hero character this was still the time when Disney was having big headline name people to be in their animated movies or i could go to something like stargate atlantis stargate obviously it started with the film in the 1990s and in the late 1990s it became a tv series that ran for a long time and had multiple different spin-off series including stargate atlantis which started in 2004 and ran for five years so you know, it was a big hit of its time. Maybe you're a fan of the Stargate franchise, possibly. So my point here is that I know when I say Atlantis, there's probably two things, two different versions, if you like, of Atlantis that's going to pop into your head. And I find that really interesting. Either it's an ancient Greek city, you know, with all the Doric columns and all that kind of stuff that's got advanced technology and is then wiped out by a great flood. Or maybe it still looks like that, but it's in this huge bubble, this sort of massive dome underneath the ocean. Indeed, you know, you get comic book characters like Aquaman, who goes to Atlantis. Now, this particular Atlantis is submerged, but it's, if you like, post-flood without the big dome around it, where the sort of mer people live. So Atlantis has just seeped into the popular culture and i find it fascinating it's one of these things where no one person owns it if you like but as soon as i say it it's so embedded in popular culture you know what i'm talking about it's not something as obscure as let's say warhammer i know i've done a bunch of podcasts in it i know i've got a bunch of warhammer fans listening to it but warhammer fans know that not everybody knows what warhammer is or indeed 
understands what Warhammer is. So, yeah, it's one of these things where we actually know the person who started the story of Atlantis, but more on that individual later on. Instead, like I say, I want to kind of talk about the pop culture, both good and bad, because this is where we absolutely get into pseudoscience and pseudo-history. What does that mean exactly? Well, there are some things that are just prehistoric, before historical records were written. For example, something like Stonehenge. Now, admittedly, the Egyptians by the time of Stonehenge were writing stuff down, but nobody in England was, and so all we have is the archaeology to support it. Are there lots of theories around it? Yes, there are. But if you like, the proper archaeologists and Neolithic studyists, I nearly called them historians, but of course, again, it's before writing, will be able to say, we can take the theory this far, but we can't take it any further than that. But Stonehenge has become connected with the Druids. And to use this as a good example of pseudo-history, Stonehenge is old and English. The Druids are old and English. So therefore, the Druids must have worshipped. Clearly, Stonehenge is some kind of sacred gathering point. Exactly what it was useful, we don't know. But it doesn't seem to have any... A lot of effort was putting into constructing this series of stone obelisks together. But the thing is, it clearly isn't defensive. It makes a lousy wall. It's a terrible home. It obviously wasn't a market or something like that. It's too much effort for those sorts of things. So clearly it had to have another meaning, and therefore, if we don't quite understand it, chances are it's religious of some description. Okay, fair enough, that's as far as we can go. The Druids were written about by Julius Caesar in his Gallic Wars and by other Roman writers as well, as in the first century AD, you get the invasion, the final successful invasion of the British Isles by the Romans. And what's interesting is they had a torrid time fighting the Druids, and we know that the Druids also were part of the Celtic societies in Gaul in modern-day France as well. So we've got some idea about the Druids, but again, they lived in a prehistoric time. There wasn't any writing. But here's the thing. This is why it's pseudoscience. Because Stonehenge was created in the Neolithic, nearly, says Jem, doing the maths quickly in his head, nearly four and a half thousand years ago, okay? But the Druids were from the Iron Age. So they are, give or take, about two and a half thousand years old. So, there's a considerable gap between those two points. The other interesting thing is the final last stand of the Druids, you'd think, might be at Stonehenge if it was an important religious site for them. Instead, it was on the island of Anglesey in northwestern Wales, which is a long way from Stonehenge in Wiltshire. So, clearly, the Druids didn't see it as a big thing. My point here is this. What somebody has clearly done is put one old thing with another old thing and thought that they coexisted. Whereas absolutely, if you look at the pure archaeology and what little historical records we have about the Druids, we know there is no correlation between those two things. Therefore, if you're a proper historian or archaeologist, you will dismiss these things. But that doesn't stop the government allowing Druids to go into the stone circle every summer equinox to pray to the various pagan gods. Hey, believe what you want to believe, but telling me that we have proof that this goes back 4,000 years? 
Okay, fine. Show me the proof, because you don't have it. I know this is an area that I've actually studied. So it's one of these things where if you want to believe this, that's fine. But belief is not the same thing as facts. And facts is how history and archaeology works. So if you come up with a theory, an idea, a belief, but cannot back it up with provable scientific facts and evidence, that is pseudoscience or pseudo-history. And it's the same thing. It's like I did Stonehenge, but it's the same thing with Atlantis. But it's big business. These sort of goofy, non-provable theories, conspiracy theories, if we're talking about modern politics, but it's hard to call them conspiracy theories if we're talking about something that's 3,000 years old or whatever. But everybody likes to have the hidden knowledge. That's a, a cool thing. Everybody likes to sort of like push against, oh, well, this is what the authorities say, but I've got a new reading on this. It makes people feel powerful and important. People want to hear new and interesting ideas. Problem is, if you're going to say that they're truly true, true, and the same as history, then you've got to then actually prove it, which they never do. So it's the same thing with Atlantis. Everything you've heard about Atlantis is to a certain extent valid because Atlantis never existed and I'll explain why when I get into the history bit but what's interesting is how there are certain bits of the past that just name recognition alone is an, a really useful shorthand for screenwriters so for example and I mentioned this in the Star Trek episode there's a surprising amount of 1960s you know original Captain Kirk and Spock type TV episodes where they travel in time or in place and there's like aliens who are also nazis but the thing is we all know that if they're wearing nazi outfits it's like clearly they're the bad guys i don't need any more background or understanding maybe there's a mystery as how did the aliens get involved with the nazis then but the point is they're bad it's just shorthand for bad and it's the same thing with atlantis to a certain extent i will be coming back to nazis unfortunately but you know as soon as i say atlantis it's mysterious it's the sort of thing where oh they had technology and you know so it's like this advanced ancient race it's a shorthand for anybody but unfortunately netflix i have a real issue with on this because they are doing a lot of bad historical documentaries I did the whole thing about Harry and Meghan saying this is everything from their perspective. And according to them, they've never made any mistakes ever, which is not how life works for starters. But also on top of that, there's nobody pushing back on any of these claims or sort of like checking dates and things like that. It's all from one perspective only, which doesn't help from a historical perspective. The whole point of history is, as a good historian, is you should be looking at different views. Everybody is biased, whether they know it or not. And therefore, you're trying to get other sources to either verify claims or challenge claims. And certainly in the 21st century, there's lots of information out there that you can sense check these things. And indeed, when the trailer for the Harry and Meghan thing came out, in, at least in the UK, there was a huge uproar of like, clearly you are cherry picking various photos and things like that. I mean, literally one of the photos when they were talking about paparazzi and showing this wall of paparazzi that had nothing to do with Harry and Meghan. That was a photo from the opening of one of the Harry Potter movies, which of course you're going to have a bunch of people taking photos on the red carpet. That's an acceptable part of journalism and why are you putting that in here so that, that's kind of like the subtle distortions does that really matter in the scheme of things 
Not so much, okay? I'm more than happy to say that's nitpicking, unless you're trying to tell a story and deliberately coming up with fake evidence, which is what they were doing in that situation. But, you know, look, it's not the same thing as rewriting the whole of history, okay? But they've also, and I'm deliberately not going to say this person's name, there is a person who has for years been making money over pseudo-history that's been given the budget to travel the world and make a series of documentaries about sort of like hidden history, secret archaeology, which all of it flies in the face of provable archaeological records. And so, look, is it interesting? Yes, it is. You know, he tells a compelling secretive journey. And again, everybody wants to know a secret. But if you're literally going to put it out as a documentary and give it all the dressings of a documentary, there are lots of people who will not bother to double check this stuff and then they get a completely wrong reading of the ancient past. So, yes, naughty Netflix on that one. But of course, you, you get this in movies as well. Now, I have no problem whatsoever with something like Atlantis, The Lost Empire. It's one of these movies, as I said, it came out in 2001. Now, Disney had their golden years, you know, starting with Snow White and to like going on the last Disney movie that was at least partly supervised, you know, partly looked at by Walt Disney was The Jungle Book, which is an absolute classic. So you go all the way from Snow White into the 60s with The Jungle Book. So that's like 40 years, give or take, of this amazing animation. But pretty much as soon as Walt died, quality control took a slide and we get things like The Rescuers. It was fine. I remember watching it as a small child and thinking, well, this is fun. But it's clearly nowhere near as good as, as Pinocchio, for example. And so Disney very much went into a slump. You know, they, they spent a lot of money and tried to resurrect themselves in the 1980s with the Black Cauldron. They spent a huge amount of money on that. And it was a huge flop as well. Now, actually, it's got amazing animation. And it's kind of aged well over the years as we've got used to things like Dungeons and Dragons and Lord of the Rings movies. So actually, The Black Cauldron, if you want to see a Disney movie, a good animated Disney movie that you might not have seen, check that one out. It's certainly better than The Fox and the Hound, for example. So they went into an absolute decline until 1989's Little Mermaid. Now, what's interesting about Little Mermaid is this is clearly still on the cheaper side of Disney animation. The animation of The Little Mermaid ain't great, but the songs are amazing. And the central animation, the key animation of Ariel is glorious. And quite rightfully, you know, it did well in things that, like the Oscars were like best original song, that kind of thing. And, you know, it made a lot of money. And that started the renaissance. Although it was 89, it kick-started in the 1990s. These amazing new works of art. I'm using that term deliberately. You get Beauty and the Beast you get, obviously, The Lion King. There's a number of them. Aladdin as well. You know, there's just some absolutely gorgeous ones. And yet, by the end of the 90s, we're starting to get ones that aren't landing as well. Things like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, for example, which get beautifully animated, but it's just a bit dark for the kids and it doesn't really have great songs in it and so on and so forth. Also, by the end of the 90s, we're starting to get into things like computer animation stuff like toy story so 2001's atlantis the lost empire it's almost like we've we've been through the peak of like the money being put into it and the beautiful animation and now we're getting something that's fine 
The animation is fun. Treasure Planet was another huge flop, which actually they put a lot of money into, and it does look pretty good, except for the deeply irritating robots. And, and look, they're trying something different. They're moving away. There's no princesses in this one. Well, kind of. You know, all the central character isn't a princess. There's not specifically a love story. It's not full of, like, lots of sing-along-a-songs kind of thing. It's kind of a slightly more serious animation. And so I do have a soft spot for Atlantis The Lost Empire, and yet it's something that nobody really talks about. Same thing with Stargate. Ever since the movie, which was an excellent movie starring Kurt Russell, James Spader, you know, it's a great film, and coming up with this idea of the pyramids having something to do with alien spaceships and, like, being built by aliens. So here we go, the kind of pseudo-history kind of thing again, making complete sense later on if you're going to spin off the TV series to have Stargate Atlantis, because Atlantis is, if you like, the granddaddy of all this sort of completely made up nonsense about technology and ancient civilization so that's a beautiful synergy there that they they put there and stargate was just on a hot streak from the late 90s on to about 2000 i'm going to say 2010 ish you know at one point there were like three different stargate tv series and for like 15 years or so i'm probably exaggerating maybe 12 years possibly 15 years there was always a stargate series of some description being out and about for people to watch you know good for them but it's interesting nobody really talks about it. it's sort of passed away it's faded and so i'm sure there's still lots of stargate fans waiting for the next stargate series but stargate hasn't been picked up by a disney or a netflix to be continued in some way so that's if you like what's going on in terms of the, uh, you know, the the pop culture and you know what i mean when i say atlantis but the other thing i'm going to say i'll put it in the middle here please if this is your first time because you love your Atlantis stuff, good for you. I'm going to say please click subscribe. Please write us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to. It helps people find us. Thank you very much for doing that. But And also tell a friend. You know, literally tell somebody in the office or your brother or sister or a mate and just turn around and say, hey, I'm listening to this interesting podcast. You know, it explains a bit of pop culture, but also explains a little bit about some history as well. You know, it's an interesting diversion. If you click subscribe, you get two. Yes, you heard me right. Two episodes a week. I am busy. Please, I'm at Gem Deducho on Twitter. Let me know what you think about this stuff, but also give me ideas, because I have to now come up with a hundred different ideas a year. So, yeah, always looking for new ideas. Thank you very much. So, what's interesting is we can absolutely tie all of this back to one person. Plato. You've heard of Plato. You might well have heard of his most famous work, The Republic. He was living in, well, I mean, there's a bit of debate about this as to where the dates land exactly, but round about the 400s BC. So give or take two and a half thousand years ago. But This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. He talks about Atlantis in two separate works, Timaeus and Critias. So these are two separate works, which are largely around sort of like people having debates and talks. And a lot of philosophical tracks have that because it allows the writer to sort of show things, show the argument, if you like, from different perspectives to ultimately win over the reader to what that particular philosopher wants you to believe in this situation. Okay, so my point here is this. The Atlantis bits are just little bits of two bigger works. And you get this story basically being created by Plato that... 11,000 years or so ago, there was a meteorite. There was this sort of like advanced civilization, and he describes the civilization. And it basically, they were rich, and they were sort of had good agricultural land, and they lived on this island. And he's very clear that this is beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which is the Gibraltar Straits. In other words, out in the Atlantic, which is literally where the name of the Ocean of the Atlantic comes from. It comes from Atlantis. So it was inadvertently named by Plato, a man from Greece who never went there. So, okay, fine. Yeah, we're all happy calling it the Atlantic, all right? So that is why. So basically, he describes this civilization and they were they were technologically advanced. Yes, but like at the point to ancient Greek levels, not to Star Wars levels, shall we say. Plato was not trying to write science fiction. But the point is, these weren't a bunch of like mud hut living barbarians. Instead, what we've got is this well organized society that's quite warlike. And basically, the way he describes them sounds suspiciously like Sparta. But the structures, basically, he's pointing out the worst bits of Athenian democracy, the way Athens was being run at the time that Plato was, like, living in Athens. So, in other words, this whole thing is clearly allegorical. He is making up a place to basically say, look at what we are like, 
And what happened to these guys who got a bit too big for their boots? They got wiped out by a meteorite and basically they got flooded and they got wiped off the face of the earth and they thought that they were indestructible. This is clearly a warning to the leaders of Greece, specifically Athens, you know, talking about hubris. You know, this idea of like, oh, it's too big to fail or I'm too important to die. And basically history has shown every time that's not a thing. So, yeah, that's what basically Plato was doing in Timaeus and Critias. And so it was talked about, it was discussed a little bit, these concepts, and it was kind of shown as, in essence, a utopia. This is the thing. What is the difference between a utopia and a dystopia? A utopia is where everybody gets along and society is well-ordered. And what's a dystopia? Everybody does basically get along and the society is well-ordered, except you are told it's got to be well-ordered by threats. So, you know, it's interesting. It's a fine line between the two, to be honest. The idea of a utopia is we're all willing to follow the rules because we're just nice people, whereas in a dystopia, we have to follow the rules because men with guns might get us. And yet they might actually look the same. They might even use the similar slogans in their scenarios. So, in essence, Plato was creating an imaginary place with an imaginary system to basically hold a mirror up to the society he was in right now. Because obviously, if he's going to start saying, I hate, I'm going to make up names here. I hate Dave. You know, Dave's our leader. Well, you know, you never know. Dave might send some guys over to break your legs or burn your house down or something like that. So instead of hammering Dave, I'm going to come up with Atlantis. And so like I said in the beginning of all of this, this was the situation with Atlantis at the very beginning of the story. It, Like I say, it was picked up by a few other philosophers in both Greece and Rome, where they basically were kicking around the idea. And that's it. It then goes quiet. Once we're into basically the 80s, we don't have later philosophers talking about it at all. And then we sort of like move into, in Europe, what we call the medieval era. There are no medieval texts about Atlantis whatsoever. Possibly because these are minor works by Plato and they could well have been lost to Europe and therefore they are being... Don't forget, a lot of the Renaissance elements actually come from the Arabic world. The Arabic scholars translated these ancient Greek texts from Greek into Arabic and later on, particularly in places like the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal and Spain, they got translated from Arabic back into usually Latin because that was the... The, the main language of the written word in medieval Europe. So they were preserved, if you like, by Arab scholars rather than by Greek or Christian scholars, which I find fascinating. So possibly it's because of that. But if you're going to turn around and say, well, if that's the case, Jem, what about the Arab scholars? Were they finding the truth? Were they uncovering the realities? It seems that you're in the pocket of big Atlantis business, aren't you, Jem? You know, all these historical societies are obviously paying you, Jem, the big bucks to keep spreading the lie that Atlantis didn't exist. Yeah, because historians are loaded, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different story. No, is simple answer. Nobody's writing about this stuff. Weirdly, the thing that reignites the story of Atlantis is Christopher Columbus. Now, interestingly, Christopher Columbus himself doesn't talk about Atlantis at all, at least in his initial trips. Later, 
when he bumps into the Indies, and then later on more explorers find this massive area called, you know, the Americas. Yes, look, I'm being very specific. I'm well aware Columbus did not discover anything. There were already indigenous peoples all over these places, and the arrival of Columbus was absolutely terrible for all these indigenous populations and for the Americas as a whole. But anyway, the point is, Europe didn't know about the Americas. And then suddenly, there they are, right at the end of the 1400s, in the 15th century. And it's like, oh my god, what's going on here? And so we actually have a gentleman called Francisco López de Gomara. I think you can guess that he's from the Iberian Peninsula. He is the first person to outright say, oh, this is what Plato was talking about when he was talking about this like massive continent, la 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 la, this is it. And indeed, in the 1500s, we get a lot of, a lot, we get a number of European scholars starting to make connections between the Maya and Atlantis. Basically, with both the Aztecs and the Maya, their language has, uh, I mean, it, some of it can be ridiculous, okay? The Atl, you know, Texalatl and things like that. The Atl is quite a common ending, particularly to Azteca words. And the reality is that's just coincident. It's a bit like, and I'm not making this up, the founder of the modern Republic of Turkey, a guy called Mustafa Kemal or Ataturk, he said that basically Turkey discovered everything. All peoples of the world are related to the Turks. And he goes, oh, Amazon, for example, is Amazon. And, and it's like, you know, that's Turkish for, oh my goodness, what a great big river. It's like, no, it's a complete coincidence that it sounds vaguely like a phrase in Turkish. And it's the same thing here with the Mexico stuff. And so, no, absolutely dismiss that. But the thing about this is we start getting these ideas and we indeed start getting things like Thomas More's Utopia. This is again in the 1500s and we get Francis Bacon literally writing. And he's, if you like, the one that really kickstarts it. In the case of Francisco de Gamara, he makes the connection with America. But if you like Francis Bacon with the book literally called New Atlantis, you can see where he's going with that, is starting to sort of reintroduce this myth. But for those people who are going to turn around and say, hang on, Jeb, this is history. How dare you say otherwise? How do you equate for the fact that something this important was completely forgotten by Europe for more than a thousand years? That doesn't make any sense to me. If it was that obvious, the stories would have continued. We would have got Anglo-Saxon stories about it. We would have got Frankish stories about it, but they don't exist. The idea is utterly alien to those societies. So with that in mind, we're basically getting a whole bunch of new philosophers or just excited cartographers just making stuff up and sort of half remembering Plato's story. And they're trying to turn this allegory into literally X marks the spot. So it's like, Florida, that's obviously, that's what Plato meant. Absolutely it isn't. And also, show me the ancient society that built something that Plato would have understood. Also, how did Plato know about this thing happening 11,000 years earlier? There was no records then. How did he hear about it? And again, if it's that old, we would have got references of it from something like Homer. They, you know, there would have been elements of Atlantis in something like the Trojan War story. Or you might have had Odysseus traveling there in the Odyssey. 
But no, not mentioned at all. There are just too many gaps. There's too much barren desert around Plato, both before and after him, to make this feel like this is clearly a bit of folk memory that Plato is writing down. And he is clearly writing in an allegorical way in the book. And this is the thing. So sort of like fast forwarding a little bit. You have had people throughout the centuries, now that Atlantis has been resurrected by the idea of the Americas, you get different people around Europe trying to find Atlantis and trying to make connections of it. For example, there's a Swedish writer. We're in now into like the 1800s and there's a Swedish writer and he comes to the conclusion, funnily enough, he was Plato was describing Sweden. No, he wasn't, okay? There's also a big problem that Sweden is neither an island nor is it underwater either. And their history does not go back 11,000 years. So basically, in every possible way, it can't be Sweden. But that didn't stop him writing an entire book about it. And you get people, you know, you get British people saying, oh, maybe it's Anglesey or maybe it was a bit of land between England and France. And it's like, oh, you're just saying that because you're English. And, you know, pretty much... Whoever it is, find out what their nationality is, and before you get to the punchline, you can guess where Atlantis is. So Atlantis starts becoming an, like a nationalistic kind of thing, which is also absolutely insane. But really, it's once we get into the 1800s, like I've mentioned the Swedes, etc., but we get the wonderfully named Ignatius Donnelly, and he writes... Atlantis, the antediluvian world. And what Ignatius does is he really spices things up and he starts trying to fit Atlantis into the biblical narrative. Again, it is worth pointing out that if Atlantis was a thing and you're a good Christian, Atlantis isn't mentioned once in any of the Bible, unless you're Ignatius who says, well, we know that Atlantis was wiped out by a flood. And we also know that there was the great flood created by God with Noah. So, yeah, that's the proof that Atlantis is there in the Bible. Now, you can see that's quite a clever literary sort of sleight of hand, but that's not actually what can be proven in any form, shape, or size. In fact, people still have difficulty trying to find evidence of this great flood, in inverted commas, that the Bible talks about. But Ignatius is just one of a cottage industry now that's coming up in the 1800s of lots of different types of people talking about all kinds of like ideas of like lost continents and things like this. It's also in the 1800s we get the idea of the general drift by tectonic plates. It's not actually sort of recognized definitely by geologists until the 20th century but in the 19th century we're starting to get this idea of tectonic drift and, and the fact that the idea that the continents have been moving around in which case well maybe it got sunk by an earthquake or erupted by a volcano there has been in the 20th century some serious looks at things like the various volcanic activity in Greek, saying, look, you know, Plato's Greek, maybe he's recounting something like Santorini exploding and that great volcano that happened sort of around about the time of the Minoan civilization, so way predating classical Greece, but, you know, maybe there's some elements there that, that he might have been writing about. 
problem with that is, well, absolutely, there were various different eruptions and earthquakes and tidal waves and all this kind of stuff happening in the Mediterranean. It is an area of, like, tectonic activity. That's definitely a thing. But the thing is, Plato was very specific about placing it beyond the Pillars of Hercules, whereas you are currently looking in the Mediterranean, which, if you're going to say that Plato was specific and you're trying to find Plato's specific place, then you are going to have to listen to Plato's specific description, which says it ain't here. So there we go. There's literally been one person who suggested it was the Isle of Wight. Guess which nationality they were. My point here is, I'm, I'm being sort of like a bit fun with this, but this is where I'm going to get dark. Because also in the 19th century, we get Helena Blavatsky, who creates the idea that these were a pure race, that they were, you know, they were psychic and, and things like that. They're sort of like the master race. This is where the Aryans collected here. And you get a lot of these people, some of them odious, some of them sort of inadvertently playing into this, where if we've got this central continent in the middle of the Atlantic, 10,000 years ago, and everybody's super advanced, they sort of kickstart every single civilization around the world. You'll get people saying, well, look, Egypt built pyramids, and the Aztecs built pyramids, and you've also got pyramidal-type stuff in places like Cambodia. So yeah, they're obviously, they, these are the echoes of the civilizations, except they are separated by thousands of years. The Great Pyramids of Giza were built about the same time as Stonehenge, whereas the Aztecs, they were building their stuff, and the Maya were building their stuff basically in the Middle Ages. And then you get stuff like places in Cambodia, Angkor Wat, for example, where that was built in the Renaissance. So again, centuries later, and they have completely different languages. Also, the stuff in Mexico aren't pyramids. They're sort of these stepped temples. They, you know, they taper off at the top, but you know, so does a tree. There's a reason why we don't have like wedge-shaped trees or buildings, because they'd collapse in on themselves. So yeah, it's just, ah, it, it drives me insane that these people are like throwing these silly ideas around. But with Helena Blavatsky, she's sort of talking about how this is the master race. And this probably won't surprise you that this then gets picked up by various radical groups, particularly in Northern Europe and Germany, which start saying, aha, these are the Aryans. And this is why Aryans are best. And they created civilization. These civilizations have been distorted by all these lesser races. They didn't get what the Aryans are going for. And so literally, you had various elements of the Nazis and the SS believing in Atlantis, believing that these, if you like, were the original Nazis, in essence. So there's that horrible, nasty element to it as well. So it's one of these things where none of this was meant by Plato. Plato was just starting off with an allegory because he was angry with the government. And it has led to, well, even worse crimes. And the other thing, of course, is his point is these people on Atlantis were bad. They were arrogant. They were full of hubris and they were brought low. So why, it's not the only thing the Nazis got wrong, but why are you now looking up to these people who got it wrong and were wiped out by natural disasters they couldn't see coming? Surely we need to learn from the Atlantis story rather than aspire to the Atlantis story. But if you like, Atlantis is this little lens, this little mirror hold it up to us about showing us human ambition, human obsession, if you like. People making two plus two equals seven, because uh, that's what's going on. So beware, if anybody says they've got a brand new way of reading archaeology or history, I want to know the facts, not the theories, not the opinions, not read this book, which has no actual evidence in it whatsoever. You know, there's no index or bibliography or bibliography of reputable books by reputable published people. Watch out for that kind of stuff, because Atlantis 
I'm going to say now in the 21st century is a fun and harmless little bit of pseudo-history, but it is pseudo-history, which is the polite word for made up. Thanks very much for listening, and as always, another episode coming soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.